As I get into the word of God, the theme for this year is getting used to different. And I'm urging people to stop treading water, waiting for things to go back to the way they used to be. Because I'm afraid that's possibly never going to happen. And if it does, it's going to be a different kind of look than even it is right now. Uh, They tell me iPhone has put out a new program where now if you have facial recognition on your iPhone, it can now tell who you are from your mask up. Crazy, huh? Scary, huh? I had friends here this morning from South Africa in my office, Mark and Queenie Bismarck, and they're under our covering here, and they're doing all kind of incredible things in Africa. Feed 31,000, I'm sorry, 3,150, let me get that right, students and children every day in South Africa. Amen. That's Tudor's brother, by the way. Amen. Mark and Matthew that you know are brothers, twin brothers, in fact. And Mark was telling me in the office a while ago, he said, I feel sorry for those that are, you know, trying to find a companion that are growing up during the middle of COVID and trying to find a spouse. How are you going to tell what they look like when all you can see is this? Get home. Oops. (laughs) Say, I do. Uh, Can I take that back now? Amen. Everybody's having to get used to different, aren't we? And it may never go back to being quite exactly the way it was before. But what you have to understand is the good news is that with God, different is always, always better. Always better. For Israel, give you an example. The promised land was different than being in slavery, right? But it was like a thousand times better than being in slavery too. Because with God, different is always going to be better. I want us to read our text. Judges 6, 25 through 29. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, this is Gideon. Most of the time when you hear Gideon talked about, it's always, he started out with so many and God had to whittle it down and then whittle it down again. And you know, the fearful had to go home and then depending upon how you drank when you came to the brook, you had to go home. Until there were only 300 left. And that's usually what most sermons about Gideon will consist of. The details of that story. But notice this. This is after the Lord appears to Gideon. He says, that same night, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut it down. Or, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. And Gideon has already said to the Lord, why did all of this fall upon us? They've lost seven years of harvest. And Gideon is is asking God, why, why, why? Well, Gideon, look around. There's an altar to a false God right there in your daddy's house. And you know, we sometimes do that. We ask God, why, why, why am I going through this, Lord? Why, why? And the Lord's saying, Mine would help if you'd kind of look around a little bit. Ask yourself a couple of questions. And then build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this very same rock. In the proper arrangement. 
What rock was that? It was where the altar to Baal was. And take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said one to another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash has done this thing. And they really got angry and wanted to kill him. Last Sunday, I started talking to you about cleaning the junk out of the attic. I'm in a series right now on cleaning out the junk and putting it by the road. Because you will not move forward in life until you do that. And today I want us to continue to talk about ridding ourselves of the thoughts, the habits, and the ideas that hold us back. And that is cleaning out the junk in the attic. Father... I ask that you would speak to us today and let your word impact our hearts. Turn the light of your gospel and your truth on so that every dark recess of our thinking can be illuminated and we can find those things that hold us back and keep us from being who you called us to be and enjoying the life that you want us to live. Because I know that breaks your heart. Because you have great plans for all of us. And so let your word be anointed and open our understanding and our hearts to receive from your word in Jesus' name. And everybody shouted and said, Amen. Amen. Cleaning out the attic and putting the junk by the road. Getting rid of the thoughts, all of the ideas, the presuppositions, the beliefs. The negatives, everything that we pick up over the course of living life that many times we don't even know is there, and yet it holds us back. Last Sunday, I told you about being raised by my grandparents and in their old house, and it was an old house, but it was a big house. It really seemed big then, not so big now that I drive by as an adult, but way back then, it was two-story, and there was a permanent stairs that went up to the attic. Not the kind with the rope that you pull down that unfolds. Not that kind. But permanent stairs, and that was one more spooky place. My brothers and I knew that Dracula lived up there. And all kinds of other hideous creatures as well. And to make it worse, on the few occasions when they would go upstairs to have to get something. We were terrified and they didn't want us upstairs. So I think they embellished their stories anyway. And we would kind of, after they would get up in the attic, we'd kind of walk up the stairs and look around waiting for, you know, Frankenstein to jump out or something. And they had the windows of the two gables. There were big gables upstairs, but they had them covered over and it was pitch black. And there was no light in the middle of the room. And so they would go up there with a flashlight and it was terrifying to live in that house as a small child. And literally at night when that old house would begin to settle and it would creak and groan, I just knew Dracula was moving around, coming to life in his casket, getting ready to come downstairs 
under cover of darkness. It was terrifying. Amazingly, I always woke up the next morning. I survived the night. And as I got a little older and my brothers got older, one day Nanny said, y'all go up there and clean out the attic. And written, clean out the attic? And they went up and they removed the coverings off the windows of the gables and opened it up. And light flooded in and we had flashlights and all of a sudden it wasn't spooky anymore. Because when the light is turned on, it chases the darkness and the things that live in the darkness away. Amen. And before you're able to move forward and move ahead into your destiny, a lot of times you have to address the reasons why you are where you are at right now. And it has to do with the stuff in the attic. Last week, I pointed out that there are many people in the Bible that needed and had to have an encounter with God to discover who they were really meant to be. Gideon was one of them. He was a mighty man of valor, but you wouldn't know it because he was threshing wheat in the wine press. That's where you press the grapes. You thresh the wheat at the threshing floor. But he was there because of fear of the Midianites and the Amalekites. And it took an encounter with God for him to discover that he was a mighty man of valor. Within Jacob, the supplanter, the heel grabber, the thief, was actually Israel who was a prince and had power with God and with man. But it took an encounter with God for him to find that out. Inside of Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor was the great apostle Paul. But it took an encounter with God on the road to Damascus before he ever learned who he was really meant to be. Simon, the one who denied Christ three times, when he had an encounter with God, he became the great apostle Peter that was given the keys of the kingdom to open the doors of the early apostolic church on the day of Pentecost and later in the household of Cornelius. And this begs the question, doesn't it? What mighty person is living inside of you that is waiting to be discovered when you have an encounter with God? Amen. Last week as I closed, I was talking about God's rather unusual instruction to Gideon, how he was to tear down the altar of Baal in his father's house and destroy the idol itself. And then on the very same spot, build an altar under the Lord. You find that in Judges 6, 25 through 26. And this is what it says in verse 26. Build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock, the same rock. Where the altar to Baal and the idol had stood. You see what you place at the highest level of importance in your life. Determines where you're going with your life. I mentioned that you've got to put God's altar above everything else. Including what you have been through in the past. What brought you to where you are. And what you're dealing with right now. You've got to put God's altar above all of that. You must give God in his word the preeminent place in your life. You can't enter your destiny until you do. But whenever you create a place of devotion within you where your heart for God surpasses and excels the pain that you have felt in your past and the disappointment that you have been through, that's when you're getting ready to see God work. Because too many of us We want to put everything we've been through on top of the altar. 
Uh-uh. What you elevate above the altar is actually between your altar and God and you. Don't put it on the altar. Build your altar on top of it is what God told Gideon. Somebody ought to say hallelujah. That means the divorce you went through. That means a breakup of a vital relationship. It means the loss of a loved one who died suddenly. It means the loss of a career or a job or whatever pain you've suffered. You've got to build your devotion on top of that instead of allowing it to become between you and God. Gideon had been through seven long years, as had Israel, of loss after loss after loss after loss. Where the Midianites and the Amalekites would sweep down. And as I mentioned last Sunday, they would come in harvest time. They didn't come when the uh, seed had been planted or when it was maturing. They waited until harvest, just about the time. You're about to reap the benefit of all of your hard work and effort in your marriage. With your kids. In your business. In your ministry. Boom. Here comes the enemy. Over the hill. Burns everything to the ground and laughs at you while he's doing it. God was telling Gideon, your breakthrough is just around the corner now. You're about to have what you've been seeking God for all of these years. And the reason that I'm preaching what I'm preaching right now is somebody's harvest has been stolen year in and year out. But I've got a word from God for you. God's going to let you reap your harvest. You're on the verge of a breakthrough in your life. Who am I talking to? Somebody's about to have a breakthrough. Somebody's about to get a miracle. Somebody's about to have the deliverance they need. Amen. It's somebody's time. It might not happen in the manner that you think that it should. It might not happen exactly the way that you expected it to. But it's going to be good because it's going to be different. And if God's in it, it's going to be good even though it is different. What happens next proves how hard it is To change the patterns that you've lived your life by. And most people don't realize that if you use the same pattern as your template for life and your decisions, you get the same things over and over again. And it's really hard to stop doing that and put the junk in the attic out by the road. Get rid of the self-limiting thoughts and ideas and beliefs and what you've been programmed to accept about who you are and your limited self-esteem. It's really hard to put that out beside the road and leave it. And this passage shows us that in Judges 6, 30 through 34. Then the men of the city said to Joash, bring out your son that he may die. Because he has torn down the altar of Baal because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. Now I want you to see this. I want you to see the people of the city really got upset when Gideon went and did what God said to do. And destroyed the altar of Baal and the image of Baal and built the altar of God there. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a God, let Baal plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. And what Joash was doing, even though it was his idol, his son having an encounter with God changed his life. And you don't know whose life you're going to change by serving God and letting God work through you. You have no idea. And suddenly Joash is defending his son and he's saying, are you really wanting to serve a God that you got to fight for him rather than a God who fights for you? 
He said, you really want to do that? And so they named Gideon Zerubbabel, only not with a Z, but with a J. And it means defender of Baal. And what it says is, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Then let Baal plead with, with, with Gideon himself. And then all the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east gathered together and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. And the valley of Jezreel was the valley of decision. And you see, when you begin to reach the point in your life that you're called upon to make major decisions, that's especially when you need to see what you got up in the attic. And it's all about to unfold and you're about to see that what Gideon has up here was worse than the idol he had standing right here. The spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet and the Bezerites gathered around him or behind him. God wanted to use Gideon to do impossible things. But he had to clean out the junk. But before you can clean it out, you've got to confront it. You've got to figure out what it is. You've got to ask yourself, and I'm talking to folk online in their, their living rooms right now, to our own line Inspire Church family, and to those of you that just happened to find us. What is it that's holding you back? You've got to be able to confront your inner programming, your fears, your doubts, the things that hold you back in your job, your career, your marriage, the things that keep you from moving forward with your education, your ministry. You've got to confront all of that. Are you going to keep cutting out the same tomorrows that fit the patterns developed in your yesterdays? Any ladies here do any sewing and you buy these patterns? If you keep using the same pattern, do you really expect it to look any different when you put it together? And God is challenging Gideon. Let me show you why breakthroughs don't do any good unless you first clean out the attic and show you the problem that he got into. He ended up causing Israel to sin. Now between the next things that I want to call your attention to and what I just got through telling you is this huge victory. Incredible victory. That's when most pastors talk to you about, he started out with all these, these thousands and, and then he sent the fearful home and like Gideon is like, what? Look at my army dwindling down. I've got a real anointing to gather. Amen. The, the longer I preach, the, the fewer I, I have. And then it's down to 300 at the water test. And then they win an incredible victory. And the enemy is routed. And then this happens. Gideon, man of power for the hour, used of God, ends up causing Israel to sin and fall back into the same dire circumstances they had been in before. They, in fact, it even got worse. They ended up going through civil war and insurrection and once again fell into servitude and bondage, but this time not to the Amalekites and the Midianites, but to their arch rivals, the Philistines, who were even more cruel. Now you might wonder how after winning a victory like that, that could ever happen to Gideon. How could he fall so far? I'll tell you why. You'll find out in a moment that Gideon ended up making an idol himself and you say but my goodness an angel appeared and it turned out to be a theophonic presence of God 
God told him to destroy the idol, number two. Number three, remember the story of the fleece on the ground? Ground is wet, fleece is dry. Then the next morning or whatever, reverse those two. And the fleece is wet and the ground is dry. And remember the dream? The, midi, the, the barley cake rolling down, he sneaks up to the tent of a Midianite and hears the dream that they're telling to one another. And just all of this stuff, in spite of all of this and the incredible victory that Gideon ends up winning, which should have sealed the deal. It should have iced it, man. He should have known from that day forward, there's only one God, that's it. No rivals. Gideon goes and builds an idol. And you might wonder how in the name of all that is righteous could he do that? It is because he lived down to what he thought of himself. And you do too. Most people don't live up to their potential. They live down to their limited self-image. I'm preaching better than you're responding rightly. Amen. I read Judges 8, 22. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us. I laugh at this. Because the same guys that wanted to kill him earlier and thought he was the least in his, his family, which was the least family and the least tribe, of Israel, now then, oh, we want you to be our king. We want you to be our king. And not only that, we want your son to be our king after you die. Look at this. Rule over us, both you and your son and your grandson also, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. People can be so fickle, can't they? Same people who once had such a low opinion of Gideon now want him to be their ruler. Isn't it funny? That the same people who would never have anything to do with you. Once you get a little success. All of a sudden. I went to the ninth grade with him. Start driving a nice car. Have a little success. Get some money. Get known. Oh, I knew him back. I knew him back when. I knew her back when. You see, they wouldn't give you the time of day before, but now it's altogether different. And this is what Gideon said in verse 23. I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now, what Lord was he talking about? Next verse says, then Gideon said to them, I would like to make a request of you that each of you will give me the earrings from his plunder for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, we will gladly give them. And they spread out a garment and each man threw into it the earrings from his plunder from the spoils of war, the battle that they had just won. Now the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. That was a lot of money. Beside the crescent ornaments, pendants, and purple robes, which were on the kings of Midian and besides the chains that were around their camel's necks. And then Gideon made it into an ephod and set it up in his city, Oprah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. And it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Like, wow. The Lord he was talking about was not Jehovah God. Because he never got the junk out. And this is, you say, but it was an ephod. Yeah, there's two meanings to the word ephod. It was the priestly garment and it was the idol itself. 
And this is why so many people that you have known work so hard and get to where they're going. And then suddenly they end up doing something that undoes all of their success. And blam, bam, they hit the bottom again. Isn't this a strange way for Gideon to end the story of his life? God can use you to do something incredible. But if you don't deal with the junk upstairs, after a while, making it to the top doesn't satisfy you because there's something pulling you back down. And it's the programming that's whispering in your ear. You don't belong up here. You don't deserve this. You don't deserve this nice job or whatever, or this ministry. Or, and I've watched it during the years. I've watched person after person build a great company or a great marriage and you invest in it and then suddenly right when you get to where you're wanting to be one or other of the persons in the marriage blows the whole marriage up you know why there was some junk they didn't clean out of the attic they didn't put it by the road i've watched it happen in ministry Haven't you observed it in ministry? God help us all. I stand up here very human and very frail. But God, you know what I pray every day? God, forgive me of my sins. Forgive me where I failed you. And help me to always bring you honor and glory. Because I know that I can blow everything apart. And I don't want to. I don't want to. Amen. I've seen other pastors and ministers do that. You see... This is the trap and the danger in being successful. Gideon was successful now. And the same people that were wanting him to die just a few verses earlier are now singing his praises. And apparently, and this is the tragedy of it, nobody but nobody was willing enough to be his friend to tell him what he needed to hear rather than what he wanted to hear. One of the hardest things to do when you're successful is keep people around you who will be honest with you and will tell you the way things really are. They said that about Michael Jackson, that he surrounded himself with people that he would not allow to tell him anything that might criticize him. And I've heard that of others who really made it big had other people mention the same thing about them. I know it about certain preachers that they don't want to hear any negatives. Look, you know what I tell our leadership staff here? Ask any of them. I tell them, thank you for the compliments, but the truth is they don't help me very much. Because all you're doing is telling me what I'm already doing pretty good at. But if you really want to help me in love, show me what I'm not doing real well at right now. Help me do better and be better, and I will deeply appreciate that in you. And that's true at every level of life that we should develop that attitude. If it's true of me as a pastor, it ought to be true of you as a child of God, and true of our musicians and our singers, and and true of our fit team, and, and those who work in the parking lot, and those who work in Sunday school. Look, our product is 
the saving of the souls of mankind. And if you can help me reach up and connect the hand of somebody I know to the hand of God, then we can change their lives forever through a God encounter. Hallelujah. The higher up the ladder of success you climb, the more you need to surround yourself with people who will be honest with you. But the tragedy is this flesh doesn't like it. And you know what we do? We surround ourselves with people who tell us what we want to hear instead of what we need to hear. So I'm going to rush through this and just simply say, don't surround yourself with syncophants. Don't surround yourself with people that are just echoes, you know, telling you what you like. Surround yourself with people, hopefully, who will do it in love because nobody likes to hear from somebody who's, who's got a bad attitude, a bad spirit. Because even when you know they're telling the truth, you don't want to listen then. (laughs) You know what I mean? So how do you get rid of the junk? How do you disown the wrong thinking, reprogram yourself, get rid of the negatives, the self-limiting thought processes? Number one, stop owning the wrong self-image. Say that. Stop owning the wrong self-image. Self-esteem is an inside job. To be who you're meant to be, you can't be who you used to think you were. To be who you were meant to be, you can't be who people who were haters told you you are. To be who God intends for you to be, you can't listen and take everything personal. You can't put your ego in what you do either, because if you put your ego in what you do, and that defines your identity, if you don't do so well and somebody tells you, well, that wasn't so good, you know what? You're crushed, you're angry, you're upset, you're hostile. So stop owning the wrong self-image. And you know what's underneath that? What's underneath that, when someone puts their ego into something they're doing, whether it's preaching a sermon or whatever it may be, it means that there's woundedness there. And there's a desire to present a better version of themselves to the world. And so the first thing you do is stop owning owning the the wrong self-image. Number two, get rid of people who keep you from becoming who God meant you to be. There's some folk you got to say, hit the road, Jack. Amen. Husband, I'm not talking about you. Don't get all nervous and fidgety out there. Amen. At home, I'm not talking about anybody you're sharing your house with, okay? But you probably, like all of us, have people around us who would hold us back, and we can't let that happen. Gideon failed to get rid of the people who held him back, and the result was he got pulled back down into it again. The very problems God lifted him out of, he ended up replicating. And who am I talking to today? Who am I addressing right now? That for generations back, you're dealing with problems that your daddy or your mama dealt with. And they dealt with problems their dad and their mom dealt with. with. And their mom and their dad dealt with problems that their parents dealt with. It's time to break the curse right now. It's time to set your family free. 
It's time to bring deliverance. Oh, I'm talking to somebody whose family is on the verge of a breakthrough this morning. Give God some praise in this house. Woo! Somebody is going to change the destiny of their family, the course of their family. Number three, get close enough to God to hear who he says you really are. Last week, I pointed out that to learn who you are requires that you have to have an encounter with God. You won't know who the creator intended you to be until you meet the creator, the one who made you. That's what happened to Jacob. He found out who was living inside of him when he crossed the brook Jabbok. Do you know what Jabbok means? It means empty. He crossed the brook of emptiness. And you've got to empty yourself out and get hungry enough that God can speak to you. And part of the problem in today's world is we stay so busy and so full, we never get hungry. Everything is easy. And what we say is hard. Our grandparents would laugh at us. Had a hard day. If I would have said that, Nanny would have looked at me and said, hard day. Hard day. She lived through two world wars. The Great Depression. The Spanish flu. And she would say, hard day. Oh, well, let me take care of Mr. Prince here and make it easy for you. Why don't you come sit down, yank out the chair, and I sit on the floor. Oh, she would have been arrested for child abuse, I can tell you for sure. God will let you get empty so that you will become hungry enough to want to know who you really are. And Jacob wrestled with God. The Bible says it was an angel, but you read further and you find out it was a theophonic presence. It, was an, it wasn't just God. It was God in an angelic form. Saul had an encounter with God on the road to Damascus. And God turned him into the apostle Paul. Simon had an encounter with God in the upper room. And God turned him into the apostle Peter. He walked out of the upper room as the apostle Peter. And bam, 3,000 got converted in one day. Because when you have an encounter with God, God will show you who you are. Woo! I, somebody ought to give the Lord some praise in this house. The presence of God is here. Right there in your home. God's talking to somebody right now. Amen. And I wonder who I'm speaking to today. But the reason that nothing you do will ever satisfy you and nothing up to this point has either is because God won't let you get satisfied. He's going to make everything you do ultimately be dissatisfying. You're going to do it and think you're going to, ah, if I could just get this and do that and go here and go there and experience this. And, and when you get done, you're going to say empty. And no matter what you put in the tank, when you drive off, it's going to go whoop, right back down on the E. God won't let you get full. He's fighting against you being full because he doesn't want you to miss your own life. He doesn't want you to live and die and never discover why you were created to begin with. Get the junk out, put it by the road, clear out the attic and get busy doing who God 
or what God intended for you to do and becoming who God meant for you to be. Number four, embrace a new version of you. Let me go through those quickly again. Stop owning the wrong self-image. Number two, get rid of the people who keep you from becoming who God meant for you to be. And number three, get close enough to God to hear who he says you actually are. But then number four, embrace a new version of you. Find out who God says you are and then get busy becoming that. You see, this is one of the most important things I will ever tell you as your pastor. You aren't stuck unless you decide to be. You're not stuck. But you don't know where I was raised. You're not stuck unless you choose to be. You don't know I went through this. You're not stuck unless you choose to be. But I was divorced. I was rejected. You're not stuck unless you choose to be. I didn't get the education I needed. You're not stuck unless you choose to be. Why? Because one plus God is a majority. God will bring you out every time. He delights in doing it. Hallelujah. 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 Give God some praise in this house. Woo! How do you go about getting unstuck? Start with your self-talk. How do you embrace a new version of you? That's where it starts, with your self-talk. Hebrews 50, 23. Whoso offereth praise glorifieth me, and to him that ordereth his conversation aright will I show the salvation of God. You can recognize by the, uh, by the archaic language that that is the King James original version, written, un, translated hundreds of years ago. Now let me bring you up to speed. Okay, the Hebrew word there for conversation, please put that verse right back on the screen if you would be so kind. There it is. See that right there? It, uh, there we go, that one, yeah. See that? Whoever orders his conversation right. You know what that word actually means in the Hebrew? It means road, R-O-A-D, like the road out in front. In other words, by being careful and changing your conversation, you change the road you are on. Powerful. That's why other translations do not even use the word conversation. Look at the new King James. It says, whoever offers praise glorifies me. And to him who orders his conduct aright, I will show the salvation of God. Change your self-talk. You will change the road you are on. Somebody that was worth the service right there. That was a now word for someone. Amen. Change your self-talk. Stop calling yourself a failure. Stop beating yourself up. Learn to laugh at your mistakes. Stop taking yourself so seriously. You messed up. Learn to say before anybody else can tell you. Did you see what I did? I blew it, man. I blew it. That was really stupid. But I'm not stupid, but that was. <laughs> Amen. Learn to laugh at yourself. And when others laugh at you, laugh with them. First of all, if you've got an enemy that's trying to make you feel bad, that will mess up his mind. 
You're not a failure. And number five in our clothes, learn to get into the presence of God. The presence of God is the atmosphere for transformation. It is the environment for radical change. Did you hear what I said? The presence of God is where you get changed, man. I mean, bro, it will change your life. When you get in the presence of God, it will alter everything about you. It will make you walk in one way and leave another. There's a direct relationship between discovering and becoming who God called you to be and encountering and learning to be in the presence of God. Genesis 1, and this, I'm done. Verses 1 through 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. What could you see? Nothing but water. And the Spirit of God came and hovered. It means he stayed in one place. If you can get and stay in the presence of God, underneath there was all kind of stuff, but it took the presence of God. He knew what was there. And I can look at you and not see what's hidden inside. You can look at me and not know what's deep within me, but let God come on you or on me and let him say, let there be and rising up out of you will come talents and gifts that you don't even know are there, abilities. Oh, I'm talking to somebody right now. God is activating some stuff under the surface at this very minute. The Holy Spirit of God is at work in somebody's life right now. Twelve times, God said in Genesis 1, let there be. Twelve, the number of divine government. And then, two more times, he said it when he created man. Wow. And when he gave man the Genesis mandates, there are five of them. Be fruitful, multiply, replenish the earth, subdue it. And have dominion. If you want to be fruitful, to multiply, replenish the earth. That is your world. You want to subdue the challenges? You want to have dominion? All it takes is God to hover over you and say, let there be. And coming out of the murky depths of the ocean will emerge things that you didn't even know you had hidden within your heart. Callings that you had never even heard, whispered, or dared to believe you could ever fulfill. I'm done. But if there's someone here that needs God in their life, and this is where it all begins, it begins at the foot of the cross. You won't find what God's plan for your life is by yourself. There's someone at home that needs God who's tuned in and found us today around the world. We're getting, as I've already mentioned, people in six continents are watching us. And I thank God and I bless every one of you and love you so much. While every head is bowed right now, 
If you need God in your life, would you raise your hand right where you are and say, Pastor, pray for me. I need God. Raise your hand right where you're at, no matter where you are. I need God. God bless you. God bless you and you and you and you and you. God bless you. Keep raising them. Keep raising them. God bless you. God bless you. God bless you and you. God bless you. Others, others, risers. Right over here, I see you. God bless you. God bless you, sir. Keep raising them. Raising them. God bless you. I see you in the back, my brother. Amen. Father, I pray right now that you would save every person who with an upraised hand today and a lifted hand acknowledged their need of a Savior. We come to you and we surrender our lives to you and ask you to be our Lord and our Redeemer. We ask you to forgive us of our sins. Cleanse us of our wrongs. Cover us with the blood of Jesus. We confess you as our Lord and our Savior from this day forward. Not just a part of our lives like Gideon did, but Lord, every part of our lives. In Jesus' name.